0: Around the world. This is one of 12. I'm never going to be able to speak their words. Got two days. Figure something out. I am human. It's their language. We need to make sure that they understand the difference between a weapon and a tool. Language is messy, and sometimes one can be both. Are you dreaming in their language? This week's episode for Lost in the Movies is a bonus episode covering the film Arrival by Denis Villeneuve. And the reason I'm covering this film now is his film Dune is coming out in a couple weeks. So I'm going to have this film going up this week. Next week I will be resharing a conversation I had with uh, my friend and film commentator Max Clark on Blade Runner 2049 from a few years ago shortly after that came out. And then I'm going to uh, return to that conversation format with Max for Dune in, uh, early in October. So three weeks in a row of uh, Villeneuve, I thought that would be appropriate for this uh, major release. And uh, in addition to that, I'll also be talking about David Lynch's Dune on my Patreon podcast. So I'll be uh, having, I guess, four podcasts kind of themed around this release. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how it plays. Dune, Dune is a hard nut to crack. But I wanted to start with this film that I really enjoyed from 2016. I think I saw it a year later. I did not see it in the theaters. I saw it uh, in the um, in the uh, uh, like on demand on TV. And my parents saw it at the time, and other people I knew saw it at the time and were impressed by it and interested in it. I just, you know, this was the period that really has extended for the past decade where I really wasn't going to see new movies hardly ever in the in the theater. There would be little spurts of it here and there, and then it would die off again, and uh, it just wasn't a habit that I took. So now, starting with Dune, I'm going to be going to see movies at least once a month because I will be reviewing a new release uh, for this podcast. So it theoretically, it could be something released on demand, which, especially post-pandemic, is a pretty common occurrence. So it doesn't have to be at the theaters, but uh, either in the theaters or on demand, I'll be watching something, um, and when I say on demand, I mean, you know, it could be whatever, Netflix, Amazon Prime, whatever the service is. It could be streaming versus uh, a, a cinematic screening. So I missed this at the time in the theaters, which is too bad, because this would have been a pretty uh, memorable experience to see, I think, with that surround sound. It's got such sublime sound design, really and uh, the score, which kind of bleeds into the sound design. I watched some special features on this disc where they dig into the, you know, the technical aspects, like the sound designer and his assistant going up into the mountains in New Zealand to record a specific bird to get the right sound. Uh, The composer has a guy sitting in the studio making these bizarre sounds with his mouth, which then you hear in the film sort of distorted and uh, it's all really effective in creating this this soundscape that goes uh, really well with the visual texture. So, of course, Arrival is a sci-fi film, if you didn't already know. And, you know, be warned, this uh, review will discuss uh, spoilers, plot, important plot points. But I will wait, and um, when I get to that point, I'll mention it. So if you want to hear a little teaser for it, you can tune out uh, when I give you that warning. So it won't be yet. Uh, But chances are you've probably seen this. It was a pretty successful movie. In my memory, it's funny how these things work. I had thought that it came out in 2014. Like, I just had it pegged a couple years earlier than it did, than it uh, was released. And that shouldn't theoretically matter, but I don't know, 2014 and 2016 seem like such different years in so many ways. I mean, certainly politically, culturally, downstream from the politics of it, Um but just personally as well, 2014 was when I was totally immersed in Twin Peaks, and I thought maybe this was like a rare kind of diversion from that. But no, it was it was 2016, and there's a lot of reviews and discussions of it that view it in exp- explicitly uh, the context of that year. Uh, you know, the film covers all this kind of international tension around these alien lands. I guess at this point I should synopsize the story since I just kind of jumped right into it uh, assuming you probably have seen it or at least know the concept Uh, but if you don't uh, as I said this is a sci-fi film it's about an alien arrival it's actually the second film in 20 years I think exactly because I think 96 was when the other one came out second film in 20 years called uh, Arrival or The Arrival I think in that case it was a movie about Charlie Sheen where he works at like SETI or something with the satellites getting, uh, alien transmissions. And, uh, I actually, the only thing I really remember about this film, I never saw it. I was kind of interested in seeing it, but I didn't go see it. My mom was a big people magazine reader at the time. And so she was following, uh, I guess their coverage of Charlie Sheen. I remember we went to a, uh, you know, I was 12 or 13 at this time. I went to a glasses store and, uh, was looking at glasses and they had a little, uh, uh, promotion for the film where it says charlie sheen wears these glasses in the arrival and my mom was like you know he beats his girlfriend right and the woman was like oh that's that's terrible we'll take that down so that's you know interesting what a long storied uh, roller coaster career he's had since that moment but that that was uh that's my only uh Contact with the arrival. So, anyways, slight segue there. Uh, she liked this arrival very much, though, and my dad hated it. And I've talked about this before on my Patreon podcast, how uh, he can't stand time travel concepts, and this plays very much with uh, time as a you know in a in a very um, philosophical conceptual manner. And he he couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand the back and forth and not knowing which direction time was traveling in. Uh, Just uh, just really uh, gets under his skin. It's funny, my aunt has the same problem. Um, I watched this film with uh, one aunt, but I'm talking about, and we'll get to that in a little bit, because that's kind of an interesting story. But uh, another aunt who's, you know, I watched this with my mother's sister, but my father's sister uh, has the same exact issue he has with time travel and that whole conceptual thing. She can't stand it. It just, like, it makes her, like, physically shudder if you talk about it. So I don't know. It must be something genetic, but apparently it wasn't transmitted to me because I really enjoyed this. So here we are. Okay, six and a half minutes in. This is a very rambling podcast, but that's just how it's going. Uh, let's get to the synopsis of it. So the film is about an alien uh, contact where 12 ships land in different spots on Earth. And they're shaped in an interesting way, I think almost like contact lenses, actually. That's how that's kind of how I see them. They describe them as pebbles in one of the documentaries about this on the uh, Blu-ray. So that's an interesting idea, the pebbles skipping across the universe. There's kind of an open question as to whether these ships... Um, well, I was going to say whether they're actually there or not, or they're kind of almost an optical illusion, but I don't think that's the case, because there is this gravitational pull that happens to the characters as they go up inside of it, which would suggest they are physically, literally there, so, uh, but the reason I kind of debate that is, uh, first of all, the short story this is based on, uh, called, uh, oh, what is it, I think it's, I'll look it up, but, we' We'll get to that in a second, but the short story it's based on is a bit of a simpler concept. I don't think there's I haven't read it, but from what I read about it, there's like not as much um international conflict, and there's not like the same thriller tension where it's like we've got a certain amount of time to figure out what the aliens are saying, what's going on. It's more just they come the linguist speaks to them, she has her visions and her encounters with them, and then they disappear. And the linguist in the film is played by Amy Adams. She is the main character and we see everything kind of through her eyes. Although there's also a character played by uh, Jeremy Renner, who is a physicist who she's working closely with and they're drawn closer together. And uh, he narrates a key passage in the film, which feels a little aw- odd because there isn't much narration in the film uh, at all, but the, uh, in this moment, I think the creators, the filmmakers, wanted to uh, shorten some scenes that they had. A whole long sequence of scenes where they just want to get the information across so they have them deliver it. It works in the context of the film, a little odd. Uh, and it's odd partly because he's very much a supporting character in this movie. Like, It's strange that he would be delivering this narration in a way because uh, Dr. Louise Banks, played by Amy Adams, is, is that central character. So I think the idea is we're reading from his journal or something like that. So anyways, uh, there is, uh, you know, a, a sort of a simpler, less tense kind of structure, I think, to the short story. And in that short story, the... the um, areas where the humans meet the aliens is like a projection from outer space so they're they're in orbit and they're projecting down this image and then it disappears so the other reason that I wasn't totally sure if these ships were actually physically there in the film is that at the end of the film they dissolve in this fascinating way again making these comparisons contact lenses pebbles so forth in this moment where they kind of disintegrate in the air they look like a uh, what's the word I'm looking for like a a pill a Tums or something where it's just like dissolving Alka Seltzer I guess it would be right where it's like dissolving in the uh, in in the uh, air and these kind of bubbles and wisps of cloud and mist are coming off of it it's a beautiful image and I have to wonder if that's where they got the idea from that that physical phenomenon because there are other things in the movie where they take a specific physical thing like for example the aliens themselves. They have these long legs. They actually do have like a torso and almost a head. They look like they could have been humanoid at one point and they kind of evolved. But we mostly see them through their tentacles or feet or whatnot. So they look a little like squids and they squirt out this inky substance that uh, produces these these uh, words or pictograms or whatever you want to call them where they're like these circular shapes with these subtle variations and flourishes on them. And that's one of their forms of communication. The other is these bellows, these noises that they make. And that idea is really fascinating. It's at the core of the movie because the reason that uh, the military brings a linguist to the ship is they want to figure out how to communicate with these aliens. So this is a movie that Focuses on what I feel like some other sci fi films kind of just brush past, which is like, how do you communicate? You know, even something like E.T., it's like they come up with this basically, they teach the alien our language in E.T. That's the idea is like, you get the alien speaking English, and then that's when you can understand them. Um, and uh, to give you know e t some more some more credit for its imagination there, there is also this psychic connection where the little boy Elliot is also feeling and experiencing things the alien is feeling. so even though the language is kind of imposed on the alien, uh there's more projected onto the human character and Arrival certainly plays on that theme big time. I think there is definitely an influence of Spielberg here in the adaptation, if not necessarily the original story, in the sense that both Close Encounters and Arrival seem to play out in a lot of the dramatic structuring of it and and some of the ideas and and, uh, the interactions between the aliens and the humans. I think this whole idea of communication is very much an ET idea uh, the idea of using a kind of a formula as a communication obviously close encounters and also the military locking down this site something else that works really well about this film i think is its choice of location so it takes place in this open field in Montana like this farmland or something that has been totally taken over by the uh, you know the US state to operate and uh, try to communicate with the, the aliens. They they push a... They kind of propel this lift up inside of the ship. And then it at that point, a, a different uh, gravity takes over. And the characters are pulled up. Like they kind of float. And then they land what would be sideways. So it looks like they should fall straight back out. But instead, they walk up this tunnel. So it's like a vertical tunnel that becomes horizontal as they move across it, which is a great analogy for the way that this film will deal with uh, time, the way it will move it backwards and forwards. So so that's kind of what's going on in this film. Uh, what makes it so deeply compelling, and uh, well, we're not quite to the point where I'm going to spoil it yet, so we'll, we'll keep going, but uh, I mean, I, I guess I already said what happens to the ships at the end, but I wouldn't really consider that a plot spoiler, considering what's really important about this film, um, is the film opens with Amy Adams' character greeting uh, a baby that she's just had. And, you know, we see the scenes of her playing with this daughter and uh, as she grows up. And she's there's a narration. So I, I guess there is a narration. I, I said that there was only the you know, that weird Jeremy Renner moment in the middle. But no, that's not true. Like, Amy Adams has her narration opening the film, and it's sort of sprinkled... I think it might be sprinkled throughout. We certainly hear it again at the end, and it's in the form of, like, a letter that she's writing this daughter. So we see the daughter growing up, her playing with her, and then the daughter sick, and the daughter dying, and Amy Adams lying in the bed with her as she's all connected up to a feeding tube or something. And it's really... It's a short little montage, and it's absolutely devastating. Um, I'm not even totally sure why or how exactly Villeneuve does it, but it—I it, mean—it makes to me a pointed contrast with something like Inception, where we have a character who—if I, I think the Leonardo DiCaprio character—I can't remember if like his wife dies or his daughter dies or both—but he's got some kind of family issue where they're gone it's motivating a lot of his behavior and it plays into the end of the film in an interesting way but i never felt any emotional resonance from it whatsoever it felt completely rote it felt like something christopher nolan like inserted into a math problem and i enjoy uh christopher nolan movies and i have i've reviewed interstellar before for my patron podcast and um there is a, there's at least one part in that that i find Uh, very compelling and resonant where the character is gone for like 15 minutes, but because time is different there, when he gets back, he's watching now these, these communiques from earth and everyone he knows on earth is aging rapidly and sending him these messages. Like, where are you? We think you're not going to contact us anymore. And he's like breaking down. I find that very effective, but uh, for the most part, uh, you know, I, I think certainly in inception, Nolan goes more for the intellectual effect than any real emotional resonance. So it would be an interesting study to look at side-by-side the way that these two films, in very brief moments, because it's not in a lot of Arrival, that they give you this character backstory, and why, to me, it feels so much more heartfelt and heartrending in Arrival. Something about the way, I think the way it's cut as well. This is a very brilliantly cut movie, and uh, there's something about the flow of images and the sharp kind of staccato violence of it. Like we have, you know, the the daughter saying she loves her and then the daughter saying she hates her. Just these sort of routine uh, things that could easily fall into cliche. And yet somehow it sets the whole movie on a certain keel. And then at the end of the movie, you find out something interesting that kind of changes that. So here's where the spoilers really begin. So what you find out in this film is uh, the character, the linguist, who is learning the alien language, communicating with them, it starts to affect uh, her thought process, her dreams, and ultimately her perception of time. So she's actually able to uh, see into the future in a really interesting way where uh, the, the climax of the film involves her communicating with a Chinese general who's about to fire on the aliens and ruin this chance at communication and uh you know coalition building between all these different nations where the aliens have landed and she's able to call him on his personal cell phone and tell him what his wife said on her deathbed which is ultimately what uh convinces him not to go forward with his plan saves everything you know the 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 nations come together and the path that the aliens wanted to set them on is is now set and the reason she knows to do this is because it's a wonderful paradox i really love how this works the general himself meets her a couple years later and thanks her tells her uh you know you called me on my personal cell phone she goes how do i know your personal cell phone and he gives it to her in that moment because she can see in the future she's able to see that number that he only gave her because she already called him so it's this kind of i think that was probably one of the parts that made my dad's head hurt but uh i i really enjoyed that and uh so so that's kind of the way that it plays out in a in a little bit more of a mechanistic uh plot way but the um, the, the the sort of crucial emotional core of it is the realization that she's going to have a child and that this daughter is going to die young, very young, and there's nothing she can do to stop it. And of course, this opens up the question, should she then go forward with that? It's slowly realized that Jeremy Renner's character is the one that she's going to have this child with. He's going to be upset when he eventually finds out. Like She knows it's all laid out for her, all these breadcrumbs, this whole path. And it's it's interesting theoretically it's a question of does she follow this or could she change it does she accept it she says she chooses to embrace it but different people kind of interpret the film in different ways again in this documentary about the movie a producer says it's about choosing it's about you know free will and making this choice to carry on even if you know something tragic is going to happen to embrace do you choose love he says And I I mean, that's certainly one way of reading it. But the author of the short story uh, has a slightly different read when they interview him. uh, He he does talk a little bit about choice, but it's really more the idea. And I should say, I I remember I I mentioned a while back that I was going to look this up, see what the title was. It's Story of Your Life. That's the name of the short story that he wrote in 1998. And He, When he talks about this concept, it's more the idea that perhaps there is something deterministic about it. The future is inevitable, and it's more a question of how does your consciousness deal with this? How do you react to the idea of knowing your own future and knowing what's going to happen? He talks specifically about knowing you're going to die, and I think the film takes that in an interesting direction where it's like, okay, that's something we don't need aliens to tell us we're all going to die. Maybe we struggle or try to deny that in some fundamental way, but on some level every human being knows that that's on the path. So what could you do to deal with that concept, with that idea in a way that a, you know, you could have this alien intelligence introducing it to the character or something they wouldn't know otherwise, and b be almost a little more profound like okay, we can deal theoretically Uh, In a film form with the idea that, uh, you know, the character knows she's going to die. She already knows that. But having it be somebody she loves deeply, who is vulnerable and dependent upon her, who's going to die while she's still alive. I think that puts it to another level. And again, you know, the idea of like killing a kid to get the, the pathos is like could be the most hackneyed thing uh, imaginable if done wrong. I think the casting is wonderful here. The actress they cast is like the young uh, daughter of her just displays again, the sort of vulnerability and fragility that really kind of breaks your heart. Like knowing that this character is, is not going to make it to adulthood and uh, Amy Adams knows this. So the shocking part of the film, of course, now is, and just the way I've described it, you know, again, this part of the podcast is more for people who've seen the film. So you watched it unfold the way I did, if you're listening to this. When I first saw it, I, I, I think I knew there was going to be a twist. I didn't quite know what it would be. And I think maybe around the part where she says, you know, your dad's a scientist, ask him, it started to occur to me. And then, of course, it's, it's finally revealed in the last big scene between Louise, the, the, the doctor, the linguist, and the, uh, the aliens, that these scenes we've seen of her with the daughter, which, again, open the film and make us think that this is a prelude to everything that happens, and maybe the film is about her redemption or coming back to life after losing her daughter, which is a bit of a more conventional character arc, we realize, oh, no, 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 this hasn't happened yet. That, that beginning of the film was actually the end. And so I mentioned earlier that I, I watched this film with an aunt, she had seen it before. I think she really wanted me to see it. So I watched it on uh, on demand. And when we got to the end, I was saying, wow, that's amazing. And as I started talking about it, I realized, and she'd already seen it, she really liked the film. Unless I misunderstood, I'm pretty sure she thought that the end of the film was Jeremy Renner and Amy Adams getting together and having another child. And this was her, like... She like she didn't get the time loop aspect of it. So that's interesting. Like they tried to, and they talk about this in the special features that they tried to make it like audience members were having a or or at least the people they showed it to or were, you know, that they were that they were thinking of were having a difficult time making that leap to like, OK, the, the time map of this film is not what we thought it was. So it was interesting to see that in person where uh, she loved this film, but she thought that it was kind of this purely happy ending where it's like, okay, now they're going to have a child and she's come back to life. It's like, no, 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 this is the child. Now, one thing I think could be a little confusing is they have three different actresses playing the daughter at different ages. They have someone playing her at, I think, 6, 8, and like 13 or 14 or something like that. So that, that could be a little confusing. Maybe that throws some people off. Uh, whether you know is this all the same character, et cetera. Like for for somebody who's not aging that much, you'd think maybe just two actresses, but now they have like three. I even noticed this time, like, oh yeah, they've they've got a few people playing this this character. So you know that that could be a, a cause, but obviously w- the big roadblock is just viewing time that way. Even when the film is telling you that the character can see into the future, I think what what what's interesting is. You can get that information from a film and accept it. Where it feels like the film, I don't want to say is cheating. I don't think most people took it that way. I certainly didn't. But maybe playing tricks on you in a way is when the film itself opens with something that you believe to be chronologically in a certain order. So you can accept that the characters are seeing things a certain way, but you don't want to think that you are necessarily. So the fact that the film does that too is something I really enjoyed and appreciated. I'd be curious to know what Martha Nockamson thinks of this film. She's a writer who has written a good deal about David Lynch. And I think this film, not to the same extent as Lynch, it's still it anchors itself in a certain rationalism before kind of taking liftoff into something that's more intuitive. But it does go to that intuitive realm that that she appreciates. It also engages with advanced uh, concepts from physics, which is something that uh, Nakomson has written about in relation to Lynch, the idea of quantum physics concepts as a kind of a key to his later work, ideas like superposition and um, entanglement and these ideas applied to the characters in his films who combine or split in different ways, uh, but pr- particularly just this idea of this character in this film who is essentially a scientist. Um, I don't know if linguistics is technically, I guess it's considered a science, signs of language, but that she you know, is grounded in that realm and that she kind of departs and is able to engage with these these creatures, these beings, on a more intuitive, emotional level, and kind of follow that instinct, and and go in that direction. I, I'd, I'd be interested to see if she feels it's a sort of a subpar attempt at that, or you know, as I do, because uh, I like this film, thinks of it as a more successful engagement where within a genre, uh, it it is able to kind of pursue that that thread Uh, there's a wonderful sequence in the film which i found out more about again from these special features where the amy adams characters talking to others uh, i think primarily jeremy Renner and somebody who don't see who's off screen and they're saying do you think learning the language of these creatures is uh, changing it's it's something called the werf yeah i'll have to look it up because it's it's a you know that's something i don't want to get wrong but it's a linguistic concept that actually language influences thought more than thought influences uh, language. And uh, she's saying, well, yes, I, I, maybe it's been affecting my dreams, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not, I, I think I can still do this work. And she's turning to the other person that we still, she keeps talking to them. We haven't seen them. And there's this weird chirping getting louder and louder throughout the scene And then we see, and that you know, is a reference to this bird they bring up into the area where they, where they, uh, where they look at the screen and they communicate with these these aliens. Kind of a wonderful metaphor for cinema in a way, where they they have this screen between them. it's called the Saffir Wharf hypothesis. That's what it is. These linguists who came up with this theory, this idea about thought and language and all of that. So, anyways, we hear this chirping bird and. Then we cut to the reverse shot point of view. We hear the, the bellowing of this kind of alien monster, and we see it right there in the room with her in smaller form, the the kind of fleshy uh, tree root finger shape of the alien right there in the room with her. And it's this dream sequence that you then kind of pop out of. What I found out from the documentaries, which is fascinating, is this was not a scripted scene. They had like a more expositional scene where the characters are all talking in, um, a, I think, a Winnebago, which we don't even get the establishing shot of. So we're not sure what space they're in as they're talking. And they wanted, they cut it out because of time. And then they said, well, we need some of the information. Like we need that the the, the saffir wharf hypothesis. That, that's got to be mentioned at some point. This idea that the language can affect your thoughts and even your dreams. So how can we do that? And then there was like a weird jump cut as they were assembling it. And they were like, well, what's going on here? This is really weird. And they started thinking of it as kind of a surreal scene. And that's when they thought, what if it was a dream sequence? And then of course they added in the, you know, computer animation of the, of the alien in there with them. And, uh, it becomes this really memorable moment in the film that only emerged in the editing room. So I love that too, this intuitive process in creation as well as the film itself being about using that kind of intuition, that, that feeling that you're on a path and you're being guided in a way rather than simply you're asserting some sort of will and scientific method to reach a conclusion. Uh, it's a really fascinating demonstration of that in form as well as content. I mentioned the chirping bird and there's these fascinating moments in the flash forwards. You think they're flashbacks until you eventually realize the flash forwards to uh, the daughter and uh, she's playing with clay and she's talking about her mummy and daddy uh, talking to animals. And we eventually realize that she knows the alien story and that's where she, she even makes clay figures of the aliens. And it's like this weird moment in the movie where you're like, is the, f- Is the future infecting the past, and then you realize no, it actually is the future. Um, You know, theoretically, they could have done even more with that. I guess they do pin it down a little bit as to what the aliens are doing, why they're here, the direction times moving in, even if it's moving in multiple directions at once. Like the or the perception is moving in multiple directions, but time itself isn't. Uh, But it occurred to me on this viewing, like they could have taken it even further and been like. Left it ambiguous, is this the past? Is it the future? Could it be both and And then I think it would really enter into a lynchian territory. Now that's not necessarily a limitation of the movie like that's not what it's trying to do, but it's interesting to think of uh, the film works so well as an allegory in some ways that you almost don't want it to be too pinned down. But the reason I bring up the bird is during those flash forwards of the girl, she has these pictures of the parents with the little bird in a cage which is, you know, the bird, again, they would take it up into this space where they would speak to the aliens to check the air. It's like a canary in the coal mine, right? And uh, presumably, if they, t- I, I don't remember if they take it up with them this one time when there's like these rogue, um, these rogue uh, soldiers who set a bomb there to destroy the aliens because they're listening to like an Alex Jones type character on the uh, on the internet, and, uh, you know, I can't remember if they bring up the bird, but if they do, the bird would die in that sequence, I think, because the aliens propel them out of that space before the bomb goes off, but I don't think they would propel the cage. So the reason I mention all of that is it occurred to me on this viewing that the the bird in a cage, in a way, is a kind of a metaphor for the daughter. Uh, so when you see the mummy and the daddy and the bird in the cage, it's almost like a self-portrait of the family in a way, because you have this... This daughter, who they know, or at least she knows, and eventually the father will know as well when she tells him, is is going to have this limited existence and is in a way kind of an experiment in a, in a dark way. If you think about it, that she's going to go forward with having this child and experiencing her life, knowing what's going to happen and and kind of rolling with it. So that was something that I found really compelling on this viewing both times I saw the film I had interesting experience I kind of wish I'd recorded my experience the first time because again I didn't know what was coming I was surprised I had all kinds of thoughts I remember after that opening montage of the uh, of the daughter ending up dead I was just like it's two minutes into the movie and I just said like this is that's a really depressing opening I don't know I don't know where this is going from here. And, uh, you know, and I was taken on that journey. Now this time it was a different journey where obviously coming in, this was the second time I saw the movie, I knew where it was going, what the twist was and all of that. And for a while it felt a little diminished for me, like, okay, now that I know, I mean, for one thing, as you're watching the character in those, really the first half of the movie, you're kind of thinking, okay, the the hook of her character is she's been through this traumatic experience, she's grieving, and this is now offering her some sort of some some new form because she seems like a very subdued, depressed character, and you're thinking it's because her daughter died. And now, knowing that wasn't the case, her character felt a little more flat to me. Like, okay, well, I I don't have the end to this character that I thought I did, because now I know that that stuff is actually coming later in the film. So in that way, it worked a little less well. What actually almost became stronger for me was that kind of crux of the movie, that transitional point where she is starting to enter into the headspace of the aliens. It felt like, in a way, that part of the movie still really uh reached me and felt compelling and felt like uh like I think in a way the fact that the first part of the movie I I talk about this a lot with a lot of films I mean I talk about it with Twin Peaks too how parts of Twin Peaks are kind of weaker than others and in a way that makes the strong part stronger it's a little bit of a perverse idea I see this with Magnificent Ambersons as well the Orson Welles film where uh, the later parts of the film were taken away from him kind of ruined by the studio, and yet there's something really rich about that because the parts where the studio starts interfering and replacing his scenes and recutting and ruining the texture of the movie is exactly when within the movie the family itself is declining and everything is becoming kind of ashy and flat and disappointing in the in the life of the movie. So for the form to reflect the content that way is compelling. Uh I wouldn't put this in exactly the same way, but Knowing so so having that first part feel a little more plain like okay well uh, this the the a little bit of the atmosphere is lost here a little bit of the character quality is lost because now I know what they wanted me to think the first time I saw it you know that that she was a grieving mother I know that that's not the case so it, it almost took something away from the movie but then that's sort of amplified the second part where she does have this deeper more profound emotional experience infused into her by the aliens in some way and uh I, I don't know how much more i can say about that concept it's a little intangible but i found that really intriguing for for a second viewing seeing how that shifted something else that occurred to me about this again that short story was written in the 90s and there's something sort of subdued and low-key about it which kind of fits that zeitgeist in a certain way when this story was written in 1998, the idea that, uh, there's not like this huge international crisis and all that. I mean, granted independence day where there is very much a huge international crisis was nineties movie. So there is that flavor in nineties culture, but there's also something sort of quieter, more subdued. And, uh, this resonated with, I think the, the, the short story is stripping, you know, this, this, uh, this film of that aspect of the, the, the sort of international intrigue, I think, gives it that kind of more contemplative, meditative, end-of-history 90s feel. And then the fact that they have all that in this movie, I think, suits more the moment that this movie came out. The idea that the, the countries are—there's another aspect layered onto the conceptual nature of the story— this sort of thriller sci-fi, more generic genre aspect, which I, I think works quite well in the in the movie. Don't get me wrong, but uh, you know, is a little bit more conventional, but also I think kind of resonant with this idea that uh, you know, uh, contra what they they told us in the nineties, history is not over, and uh, that these everyday geopolitical, uh, ideological conflicts and tensions and all of that have to be worked out as well. There's a CIA agent in the movie too who it was an interesting role. Like there were points where the way he talks about like Russia and China was almost like, you know, who who was the Pentagon advisor on this movie? All these movies have that, although this is technically, I think, a Canadian film, which we're going to get to in a second, so maybe not, but it was distributed in the U.S. and I think received some U.S. funding, uh, but other times he's more of a villain, pulled a gun on the heroine at one point, and I mention all this just because I love the casting of this character. Uh, it didn't occur to me at first, well, actually at all until I looked it up, who this was. He looked familiar. He looks almost like a little like Joaquin Phoenix. He's got this kind of owl eyes. And uh, it, it's a little unconventional for this type of bland bureaucrat character. But I really liked the casting. I thought it it worked really well. And I looked him up. It's Michael Stol- uh, Stolbarg. I'm not sure how, how to pronounce his name. But he was the lead in A Serious Man, the Coen Brothers film. And I loved that detail. Like, again, that's just a brilliant little flourish. And that that's the type of thing that makes me look forward to uh, Denny Villeneuve's adaptation of Dune. That kind of imagination-infused into these sort of conventions um i've only seen it's funny they mention on the documentaries that this was his first sci-fi i've only seen his sci-fi films i've seen this blade runner and and soon you know i'll see dune so uh that's the only kind of aspect of him i'm familiar with and i really like the atmosphere he pulls up in those films you'll hear me discussing blade runner 2049 uh, next week and there's there's a a uh a moodiness to it that i find quite effective and and pretty distinctive like a uh, even within all the variations of sci-fi this is something that i feel like is uh is his mark and i can't i can't think of many other films in this genre that quite pull off this this uh particular kind of foggy uh i'm i'm struggling a little with how to describe it but there's a certain texture to his works, at least the two that I've seen and the the clips I've seen of Dune coming up, that that are quite effective. Again, that that sort of sparse Montana landscape, the mistiness within the alien space, the forms of the aliens themselves. There's like a poetry to the to the genre convention or infused into the genre conventions that I've, I I quite enjoy. And another aspect of of Villeneuve and and this particular film again, is it's a Canadian production. And it kept reminding me in ways at sometimes sort of elusive ways, and then uh, at times more concrete ways, of the film The Sweet Hereafter, Canadian film from almost exactly twenty years earlier that I've discussed uh, while, well, I've recorded a discussion on that, comparing it to Twin Peaks that's going to eventually come out on my Twin Peaks Cinema podcast. I've been thinking about that film a lot this year. I saw it during the winter, talked about it, and it's just really lingered with me. It's such a powerful movie, and again, such an atmospheric movie. There's something connecting these two films in a way that, uh, I don't know if it's distinctly Canadian or what. I mean, this is a film that Arrival takes place in America, but there is something kind of Canadian about it. And, uh, they're both also about the loss of children. Uh, they're about somebody who's kind of seeing into the past and the future. And this idea of like a moment in time is kind of creating the events after as sort of a traumatic aftershock. It may, may make a little more sense when I eventually discuss Sweet Hereafter. So I'll I'll leave it at that. But I really enjoyed this film and I would actually... I always throw this out there in every podcast and I never really get a response. I've shared some listener feedback uh, in the past, but that's actually, truth be told, all for my patron podcasts um, where there's a little more engagement. I know there's a few of you listening out there. I really would like to hear anybody, even if it's just basic couple sentences, how you experienced this movie, how you saw it and what you thought about it and a kind of your experience with it. That's something I'd love to share on an upcoming podcast. So please send it my way uh, if you could, anybody out there listening in the void. This is a film about communication. So let's get some communication happening there. And we'll leave it at that. Uh, I'm going to leave you though with a clip from the next episode coming up in a week. Um, well, from the film that's discussed, as we said, it's Blade Runner 2049, another Denis Villeneuve sci-fi film, which came out only a year later. So I must have seen these, I guess, the same year because I did see Arrival in 2017 after it had already come out. Funny that I thought there was so long between there's there's time playing tricks on us again. We didn't have any of you when I was a kid. Hi. You're not going to kill me, are you? Depends. What's your model number?